Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live from Rhode Island with today's guest, Eileen Savage, the Chief Advancement Officer of the Cranbrook Educational Community. Welcome, Eileen. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I have to ask, let's clarify up front, what is the Cranbrook Educational Community? That's a great first question. Uh, the Cranbrook Educational Community is actually a community like no other. Um, it is a rare uh, conglomeration of programs and um, really our founders, George and Ellen Scripps Booth, pulled together what they felt were key priorities um, in the educational process. And it became a little bit of a, a utopian sort of community. So here we are today, um, over 100 years later, and we have a pre-K through 12 independent school that includes both a day program and a boarding program. And within that uh, independent school, we also have the separation of two, um, two schools, the boys middle school and the girls middle school. So it's, it's kind of a, you've got it all. Independent school, day school, boarding school, and single sex, gender, school arrangement. That's one piece of the house. We also have the preeminent master's program in fine arts. So we have Cranbrook Academy of Art, Cranbrook Art Museum, which is the public facing contemporary art museum, Cranbrook Institute of Science, which is Michigan's natural history museum, the Center for Collections and Research, which is the um, archives and interprets the story of Cranbrook, takes care of all of our history and moves things forward. Um, I'm probably leaving somebody out. Oh, our Horizons Upward Bound program. So the way that I look at Cranbrook today is it's pretty much like a liberal arts college without the undergraduate degree and replace that with the pre-K through 12 and you've got Cranbrook. I would encourage everybody, just if you're if you're hearing Eileen say it's unlike any other and you're questioning if that could really be the case, just go to cranbrook.edu and you will see a website unlike any other in this space that helps immediately uh, understand the breadth and depth of the work at Cranbrook in addition to the camps that were referenced, uh, you know, I think briefly. So there is a lot there. This is not your uh, just middle of the plate uh, sort of K-12 uh, independent school fundraising experience. And we're gonna talk uh, more about that, Eileen, but before we do, I've gotta help our audience understand who you are. And one of the fun ways we've been getting at that is just understanding your own college journey. And so let's take a, a, a step back for a minute uh, and think about junior year of high school. Who was that Eileen? What was she into? And what led her to study German at the University of Cincinnati? Junior year in high school. Wow. Um, we're going way back. And that Eileen was um, looking at a senior year in high school where I was going to be one of only two students taking a fourth year German class. Um, I was fascinated by the language and the history and felt that I wanted to pursue that in addition to international business, um, mainly out of a passion for it because my family is German and I wanted access. So um, the- And when you say your family is German, what does that mean? 
um, on my mother's side, both grandparents um, came over in the 20s, and it was a very influential and strong part of my upbringing. So, um, and so you um, heard grandma and grandpa speak in German all the time. Did you pick any of it up as a kid or not at that level? Uh, I tried to because frequently my, my mother talked with my grandmother about what we were getting for Christmas in German. So I always wanted to overhear and, and eavesdrop on their phone conversations and understand what they were talking about because all the secrets were told in German. So um, I, I worked hard to learn what I could and I had kind of a street level German um, growing up and it was my mother's first language. So it was very much a part of our life. Um, so yeah, I wanted to learn about more about the family history. I, ha I had a fascination for other history and, and particularly Germany during the Second World War and post-war. And so going to University of Cincinnati, it was one of the top five German programs in the country at the time. And so that's what really drew me to, um, to Cincinnati. So I became a Bearcat. And is the strength of the program I mean, I would imagine it's rooted in just the strength of the German community, German sort of history. I was in Cincinnati on Wednesday and over the Rhine and you can't sort of, no matter where you look, there's some sort of German uh, heritage reflected in uh, everything from, you know, the beer to the name of the streets. Absolutely. It's, it's still very much um, rooted in its German past. And in fact, when I was in school there, and I believe this is still true today, there is a, a church in Over the Rhine that still has a mass in German every Sunday. So the Catholic Church, Old St. Mary's, very much so. And so you're going to Cincinnati, and, and I guess at that time you do the four years in high school, you continue both the broader kind of German studies with language being a part of that. Um, like every year at Christmas, are you getting better at speaking to mom? I mean, what was that journey like? <laughs> Actually, not at all, because my mother <laughs> spoke. A or is she now annoyed because she has no way to tell secrets anymore? <laughs> she, she can't tell secrets, but she spoke a dialect that is a language of its own. And I learned, you know, the high German. And so uh, really almost two very um, distinct languages because the dialect was so strong. So, yeah, it was a lot of fun. And immediately following your time at Cincinnati, you decided to pursue a master's um, program at Indiana University, which is part of how this whole circle, uh, which, which we'll share, has, has uh, emerged and gotten us connected. But um, how did you know you wanted to pursue the master's right away? What was your goal? And then ultimately, where did that lead? I wanted to continue because I was um, still passionate and still very interested. And I didn't feel like I had fulfilled what I was interested in um, and felt that taking that next step in my studies was really a clear, um, would give me more information, first of all, but also help me understand which path that I want to go down. Did I want to continue along the more of the, the business route and go the MBA route, or did I want to pursue a PhD and move into academia? And so I decided going into um, the MA program at IU would allow me to, first of all, it wasn't a terminal master, so I could continue with the PhD if I wanted to. And if I chose not to, I knew that at least I would be making a decision based on um, some really further information. I'd have a little bit more under my belt. So I do think that that's actually um, 
a pretty common practice for folks is to you know take the next step, see if it answers some questions and and helps fulfill some other dreams perhaps, and then you make some new decisions along the route. Well, I'm guessing at that time for most of us, um, the exposure we had to the German language was probably 99 Luft Balloons, which could have been a great karaoke song. I don't know if you ever decided to show off in that way, but I would have done that if I were you. <laughs> I, I shy away from the stage. Okay, <laughs> all right. I'm actually an introvert, so oh, <laughs> unless well, I've had too much German beer, you're not going to find me up there. <laughs> what a missed opportunity. Um, so you, you complete the master's program. Where did, where did it lead? Um, I don't exactly know the direct kind of career path. Did you go right into the world of philanthropy? Any pivots along the way? Yeah. Actually, no, I, I, I did what many people do. I got married um, and um, met my, my husband at IU. And um, we decided to pack everything up and move to the West Coast. And his family was um, very big in agribusiness in the San Joaquin Valley. And I was just interested in just about anything. I was, I was anxious. I had sand in my shoes, as my grandmother would say. I wanted to move around and see what was out there. So we packed up, moved to Fresno, California. And um, in, a, in a roundabout way, I think in Fresno, I started to dabble in the the world of philanthropy because I was um, teaching at a independent school, private Catholic school actually out in Fresno and started to really realize the impact of giving to the school and how that made a difference in what we could do because I was the director of student activities. I could see how that made a difference in what the kids were able to put on and put together. And um... I would imagine, you know, in, in that environment, it's pretty, pretty much roll up your sleeves fundraising, you know, just getting to know the local community, you know, maybe some parent driven, you know, fundraising, probably not a lot of principal gift conversations those days. Exactly. It's very grassroots. It, it's um, really how I think philanthropy has um, found its, its best nature in, in this country and that there are people who um, are trying to help each other through either funding, you know, direct funding or volunteering, talent, all those sorts of things that come together to, to develop our sector. And I certainly saw that along the way and particularly at the school um, with all sorts of volunteers. And that, that just continues as you look at any philanthropic endeavor, whether it's you know the principal gift level or beyond, you've got this, this puzzle piece that gets put together with all sorts of elements of fundraising. What was your path back to the Indiana University Foundation? Um, what were the stops between Fresno and, and there, or was it a direct return back? Well, it, it, was, it was driven again by more personal reasons. Um, my, my spouse wanted to pursue a PhD, so I became um, kind of the trailing spouse and ended up at, at IU again in Bloomington. And that's where I really got my start in fundraising because I took a position with um, an area agency on aging. And um, at that agency, I was responsible for a, um, an AmeriCorps VISTA volunteer program. So I got involved in grant writing. 
I got to understand a lot about, you know, the reporting on grants and, and following the intention of the grant to a letter, and especially when you're talking about a government grant like that. So that was part of the role, quality assurance programs. And the thing that really um, launched it was the state of Indiana required us to host a program on aging seniors and keeping seniors healthy, but they required the program, but they didn't give us any money to put the program on. And so um, I just, again, to your point about rolling up your sleeves, I decided, well, I can figure this out. And um, there was a center for hip and knee surgery not too far out of um, Bloomington. And I thought this seems to be a perfect prospect for the kind of thing that we're talking about. And, and I remember the moment when I sat down and talked with the person about what we were trying to accomplish and asked for a sponsorship and they said yes. And right away I realized, number one, people want to help. They want to make an impact. And through this um, gift, we have the opportunity to really drop that pebble in the water and do so much more. And that's when I really realized that this was something that, um, that I wanted to be involved in and that I felt that I could be successful in. And most importantly, that it would have an impact on other people's lives. So bringing it into the university again, um, Kurt Simic actually did hire me because I started to look for a much more um, professional development role that, that really was 100% that. And Bloomington was in the midst of an endowment campaign, and they were trying to start a, um, start a development program at the art museum on campus. And through, the, um, through that role, when, when Kurt brought me in, I learned too that you had to be super nimble to be able to, number one, establish a program based on best practices. They had not had one in the past. And at the same time, we were trying to raise major gifts. So um, it, in order to complete our goals for the endowment campaign, you know, so we were building a program starting out with, you know, just some building the base and getting some participation involved, starting a high level recognition society. And oh, by the way, we have to raise millions of dollars to um, meet our goals for the campaign. But there again, at the end of the campaign, um, we were successful in many ways that you measure success. And the way that I was most pleased about our collective success was that we had raised an endowment fund for each and every curator at the IU Art Museum that allowed them to then continue their work um, in the way that they wanted to. And, and I thought that that was successful. And so that was really the before and after, which is instead of kind of scraping together money as you go, let's create a predictable ongoing stream of, of endowed spinoff to just frankly let you spend more time curating and less time worrying about where the money's coming from. Exactly, exactly. And it was a brilliant campaign and it was put together by, by Kurt, who was always the, you know, tremendous public face of the university and tremendous in, in relationship building. And, and yes, with, with my dear friend, Sandy Bate, who I saw just recently, um, 
all the stories of generosity that that Kurt can tell. Um, but along with that, he had the stra strategic mind of Kent Dove. And I think the two of them became a, a real dynamic duo because you need that external face. And in a, a institution the size of IU, you really need that strategist behind the scenes. So I, I was so privileged to work with both of them. Tell me a little bit more about, I mean, Outside looking in, you could say, oh, you joined Indiana, successful established fundraising organization, which literally teaches fundraising to everybody else. But it sounds like it was a particularly entrepreneurial opportunity within that mature environment. And, you know, curious if there are other folks listening who maybe are at a, an established uh, fundraising organization, but trying to get that endowed program going for their equivalent of the museum. I mean, any lessons learned on trying to be, I mean, you don't often hear like nimble and like, you know, large public foundation in the same uh, sentence. So, you know, how, how, how did you balance sort of the infrastructure and the scale of Indiana, but still trying to find that path forward, given that specific need? And maybe that's just fundraising every day because every year, every decade, it's something new where you have, essentially have to start start again. Yeah, I I think that the one thing that um, that allowed us to kind of build the plane and fly it at the same time was the thought that okay, here you are in a, a small unit within a very large um, multi-campus university a much smaller unit that has that element of the quality of life that adds so much to the rest of the campus and yet it hadn't been getting the public attention of the you know really gathering in the people who love that place and what i realized really quickly was i was not going to make progress unless i made all of my colleagues across the campus um, as close cohorts of, of mine or close colleagues of mine as I possibly could. So what I realized was, and, and I, I tried to live this and I know I stumble, but treat your colleagues like your best donor and you will all go further together. Because I had no constituents at the art museum. We weren't graduating anyone. I had no one who was a natural constituent. And so in my mind, I just thought, that means everyone is my constituent. But in that everyone, they're also on other people's radar, other people's lists. And so I had to become a very collaborative partner with my friends over at the Kelly School of Business or in the College of Arts and Sciences. I just had to make sure that we were uh, not stepping on each other's toes and that they knew I would support them as much as, as they were trying to also support me in my work at the art museum. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we talk a lot about um, the importance of polite persistence in engaging donors. Um, you know, we can't be too aggressive, but I think all too often we're too passive, right? I sent one email, they didn't write me back, they must not, must not care or wrong. It just, people are busy and they don't write back to the first email in 2022. And so um, it sounds like that spirit of polite persistence not only applies to the donor engagement, but, you know, how do you stay politely persistent with your peers in a university where you're sort of reliant on each other, um, but not necessarily having reporting lines or influence where you can just 
you know, ask somebody to do something or tell somebody to do something. It's sort of more influence. Exactly. And I, I think you have to use that to your advantage and figure out how to leverage your colleagues um, and also recognize that everyone has goals. Everyone is serving a lot of people in, in their work. Um, and so as the best that we can make sure that we're trying to support each other um, and yeah, be persistent, but at the same time, be a, be a really smart partner, knowing that, um, knowing that we're all kind of in it together. And I, and I don't think that we talk enough about our internal workings and our internal relationships. We talk a lot about donor relationships, but I do think it really starts at home and making sure that we're trying to be as best a partner to each other as we possibly can. Without putting on the spot too much, although that is kind of the whole point here, um, how do you do that? Uh, how, do you, how do you think of the staff or other stakeholders recognizing that, hmm, we're never even going to get to all the donor relationships that we need to, but I guess we're definitely not going to if we don't have a well cared for, you know, energized, committed staff. So, I mean, are there things that either Kurt or Kent did with you and your staff that you've tried to emulate or habits that you've developed that are maybe you feel have served you well or that you've gotten positive feedback from over the years? Yeah, and I, I can speak to um, some examples of both. Kurt Please. And Kurt and Kent were um, very two very different styles, but Kurt made it a point. First of all, he was always the first car in the parking lot. No matter what time you got there, Kurt's car always beat you. So he modeled really professional, um, rigorous dedication to the work. Um, which, you know, today we have a, a little bit of a different life that we're leading, but it always impressed me that if he wasn't traveling, Kurt was the first guy in the office. And he also walked the floors. He, you know, made sure that he stopped in at your office door just to say hi. If you're on the phone, you got a quick wave. He had that style of leadership where each and every person mattered and you knew it. And he was doing it with an authenticity because he really did care. Um, Kurt is the master at building quick trust. And I think that's part of it uh, because he does remember your kid's name. He does remember your birthday. He does send 700 Christmas cards. He is that guy. Um, Kent, who I directly reported to um, when I moved over from the art museum to the foundation, so I, I have experience on both sides of the street, Kent always would say, and this, this is current now, Kent would say to me, Eileen, I really don't care when you get the job done, just get the job done. I was a single mother with a young child and I would get the call from the nurse's office and I knew I didn't have to tell Kent where I was going. I could walk out the door and it was fine. I have used both of those styles and lessons as I work with my team. I've got young parents um, and I know that they want to be um, successful at parenting, successful in their marriages, successful in, in the job. And it's my role to make sure that they have the tools that they need to be successful on all fronts. And sometimes that means just get out of the office. You know, it's your kid's birthday, go have a good time together. That builds loyalty, it builds trust, it builds honesty. And um, 
and I value the the lessons that Kurt and Kent taught me as as a young person, really shaping not only a professional career but a life. I think that's what the lesson was. You're you're shaping a life. Well, we've certainly all witnessed that or lived that as you know leaders or just humans. <laughs> the last couple of years, there is something you said though that struck me around that idea of being present and walking the floor. Um, and I think that's something, for example, that I did a lot prior to the pandemic, tight knit office, open floor, pop into a meeting of the engineering team, listen in, pop into a meeting of the design team, listen in, sometimes contribute, sometimes just listen. Uh, I can't remember the last time I've done that as we work in this now more fully virtual environment, we've leaned aggressively into remote work at Evertrue, partly driven by our merger with Thank You, partly driven by a lot of the themes you just shared about sort of work-life integration. And at the same time, have not figured out what the digital remote first equivalent of walking the floor is. So I'm making notes to figure that one out um, because it really shouldn't be that hard. In fact, it should be easier than ever because teams are getting together. The Zoom meetings are scheduled, uh, but you can't rely on kind of randomness the way that we might have in the office. Uh, we've got to be more intentional, I think, in this environment. And that's something that I've definitely failed to do. Well, it, it's interesting because it, we have a new president, AC is getting getting her legs here and um, coming in at a tough time when you're transitioning out of the pandemic and, and Cranbrook really went through it incredibly well. We stayed in school, we stayed in person um, and yet the office really did change. But prior to AC, Dom DeMarco was our president and during the pandemic, he stayed on for an additional year. He would do something which has grown to be known around here as a team's bomb. And Dom would just drop in on a video chat with you unannounced. All of a sudden your teams would start lighting up and Dom would have his face on your screen. Just that was his way of walking the floor. He would just check in with you. And we joke like, did anybody get bombed by Dom yet today? I mean, you know, what's going on? So um, he found a way to do it. And um, I, I, I love it. Well, yeah. to my colleagues, you know, Lillian and Solange who are listening, let's get the Brent bombing going here uh, following <laughs> this and we can thank Dom. And then when it happens, let's send Eileen a screenshot of, of, in our case, the Zoom bombing that will go down. So thank you for the inspiration for sure. Um, I have to ask, in addition to the work you were doing with, with Kurt and Kent, you know, one of the real distinguishing factors of uh, Indiana University is the Lilly School. And my understanding is that you uh, had the opportunity, you mentioned, you know, teaching, you had the opportunity to continue to teach. Um, tell me more about both that experience of uh, getting to teach uh, philanthropy while at the same time, you're still learning it yourself. Uh, but then also what others listening who've maybe heard of the Lilly School or, or, or maybe know of it in passing should really know about what makes it special. I think um, the, to answer your last question, what makes the Lilly School really special, I think is it's the, the full integration of research 
applied to the practical side of our work. And um, so I, I love the fact that everything that they're teaching, everything they're, they're talking about is really based in current research that the research teams or others you know, around the world are putting together so that we have cutting edge understanding of what is working and what are best practices in philanthropy. So it really helps for um, decision-making to have that backbone of the research when you're trying to figure out your priorities, because we all know we just don't have enough hours in the day. How do we structure a campaign that's going to be successful? What are the kinds of things that we really need to be evaluating? What are the key indicators that are gonna be successful? So all of that research, you know, even thinking about women's philanthropy or um, like Tyrone Freeman and his recent work on Madam CJ Walker, all of that comes into play as we're thinking about, okay, what does that mean for us and how can we apply that into our programs today? Um, so I think that that's what makes the Lilly School really special. It's that, that unique combination. Um, and I have benefited from that. And as, as I think about decisions here with limited resources, if I don't have the research to back up my decision, I need to go find it because it, it can't be just based on intuition which is a strong part of how we deal with individuals. And it, it's got to have a piece of that as well. But as you're putting together programs, particularly if you're reporting to trustees who are accustomed to looking at data, they're accustomed to looking at that kind of um, backstory to back up the research or back up the decisions, it, it's critical. Uh, so, I, I think being on the faculty there also gave me a window into that kind of research. And it also gave me a window into new professionals who were finding their way and how I could bring them along in the classroom or as a mentor going forward to understand, to understand the work, understand the role, understand how they could have a very successful and fulfilling career and what piece of this broad spectrum of the philanthropic sector could be best served by what they bring to the table. The Lilly School is an amazing organization um, and it's so, established and respected, but I do feel at times it's almost understated. Like there are, there are times when I feel like we should all be doing Lily school stuff like all the time. And it just, I don't know why I feel that way, but it just feels like almost like it should be bigger than it is. If, if that makes sense. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of laughing because, you know, it's in the Hoosier heartland and Hoosiers are modest. Yeah. We're not real good at tooting our own horns, but I agree with you. The Lilly School is the gold standard. Um, and I send my, my team members there as often as I can or have them working on online courses. And I'm taking online courses because it never ends, right? Well, that sounds like a perfect plug for our audience um, who, who are, you know, advancement leaders or aspiring advancement leaders. Um, what are the programs that everybody should know about or at least think about or go Google right now as they're listening? 
I, I would get on the Lilly Schools website, look at um, the courses being offered. And if you're brand new to the field, by all means, take the principles and techniques of fundraising class. Uh, because regardless of the type of nonprofit you're working in, those principles and techniques are going to serve you anywhere you go, regardless. Um, so I, I actually remember teaching that class very early on, and I had students from Harvard, from the Harvard Advancement Office in my class, along with a gentleman who was working in the Sierra Nevadas, who had founded his own nonprofit to save the donkeys of the Sierras. So I thought, okay, here's the broadest spectrum I could possibly put together, saving donkeys and Harvard. And yet <laughs> the principles and techniques of best practice fundraising still apply. So um, I'd always start there. And I would also then look to um, many of the classes, they're getting very specialized now um, that would apply to what you're trying to accomplish in the moment and listen to the podcast. So there's a first day podcast that, that is um, ongoing with the head of the Lilly School and it's 12 minutes usually and it really brings you up to date on what's going on currently. I love that, I'm gonna subscribe. Thank you for the recommendation. Um, and then just in the spirit of resources and best practices, you know, I, I wasn't as familiar with Kent Dove's work until you shared today, but I've now stumbled across the fact that he wrote a series of five books, I think roughly in 2001. The first one I'm seeing is called Conducting a Successful Annual Giving Program, a Comprehensive Guide and Resource from 2001. I bet 21 years later, it applies like the tech I'm sure has changed and the data and all of that, but I'm going to, uh, I'm going to buy those things on the Kindle here. And, uh, I don't know if that was part of your training or if you've, uh, you know, yeah, I, I was there when Kent was writing those books and, and it was, um, Kent had also one of those, um, uncanny styles of bringing people together that yeah he, he, he kind of farmed out the work a little bit to pull some of the, the resources together in those books and various colleagues of mine wrote chapters and it, it became truly a team effort. Um, and I know it was partially to get the job done um, and really get these resources out there into the world because people needed them and still do. Um, but also it, it allowed all of us to take a look at, you know, this, this team that Kent had built. And um, that was another really strong lesson that I learned from Kent, because as we were ramping up for the campaigns and hiring more and more staff, we talked about in one conversation in particular about a hire. And he reminded me, he said, Eileen, you don't always hire the person who has the best resume or the best qualifications. You hire for the best fit and we can handle the rest. And um, that is so true. If the chemistry doesn't fit, it's not going to be a successful hire. So um, good mentors along the way, for sure. Tell me about moving from and growing up professionally in the humble Hoosier environment you were just describing and then going to the Getty Trust. Kind of a different vibe. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> what should everybody know about the Getty Trust and um, the quick kind of perspective on, I mean, you just talked about 
like donkeys and Harvard. I mean, Getty Trust and Hoosiers probably, you know, similar level of, um, uh, you know, level of differences, I guess I would say, but maybe it's all the same. Like, what should we know about the Getty Trust? What should we know about fundraising on behalf of the Getty Trust? Well, I, the, the Getty was trying to put together um, a program that they had not built a, a program of, of philanthropic support because they didn't need it. They still don't. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the size of their endowment, when I went there, it was six and a half billion. I'm, I'm sure it's you know, far higher than that because of, of the growth in investments. But um, they were trying to build a program. And I think from my experience at IU after the, the art museum, I was frequently put in to the programs that were maybe floundering a little bit or needed to grow or needed some, some entrepreneurial spirit to help them build up. So the Getty um, hired me with that intention to build a program from the ground up and had to be super creative because you have to attract interest in giving to a place that doesn't need it. So, um, but, you know, speaking of Harvard, that is the Harvard model. It is about being, it's about association. It's about association with a brand so that, that is always the lead with a place like the Getty or Harvard. And it's also about access. So who gets access? How do they get access? And what kind of access do your audiences want? And the Getty is unique in that it has not only the art museum um, up on the hill, but also the villa. They also have an archive, a research archive, and a conservation institute. So it's very interesting like Cranbrook, a very con- interesting conglomeration of programs that we could use to our advantage to help leverage those, um, those constituents who are interested in the various parts. So it, yeah, different vibe, but mm, just, you know, different geography and a few different tweaks to it all. But it, it, at the end of the day, it's about philanthropy and getting to know your donors and understanding what they need and want. The board dynamic had to be interesting. I mean, the board of the Getty is completely stacked uh, to this day. I don't know who it was then, but you've got, speaking of Harvard, Drew Faust, who used to be the president at Harvard. You've got Bruce Dunleavy, who founded Benchmark Capital, one of the most successful uh, venture capital funds of of all time, and so on and so forth. And so um, what's that dynamic like? I mean, what's the, the role of a board in an environment like that? I, I think the role of the board in that environment and the role of the board in, in any environment is really, particularly if it's a fiduciary board, they, they are responsible for um, all of, you know, making sure the, the decisions are fiscally sound and, and key, you know, hires, things like that. But they're advocates and they really need to understand the inner workings to be able to speak well on behalf of the institution. So um, while you have some super high powered individuals uh, around the table, they're really there on behalf of the organization. And if they can help by leveraging their other connections, great. Those networks are absolutely critical to, to the success in fundraising. So I don't see it very different. And I also, you know, as you were talking about those names, I was reminded too about how courageous fundraisers have to be. 
because there are some really, really powerful folks who have the capacity to give and we have to be able to you know, meet them where they live. And that's an important part of the role of a fundraiser. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's an element, I guess, in any, in any fundraising environment. I mean, effectively, in a certain regard, you're working with local celebrities, maybe not like Hollywood celebrities, but although maybe at the Getty, sometimes Hollywood celebrities, but, uh, but, you know, the leaders, right? Like the, the leaders, the, the most affluent members of a community. And it probably uh, takes some sets and reps to just get comfortable holding your own and being confident and not feeling intimidated or, or letting, um, you know, somebody drive the conversation too much just because they're highly accomplished and that's what they do in in their field. Yeah. And I, I do think that recognizing that everyone has their, their, um, you know, their doubts, their, their places where they might feel a little bit shakier than others. That's just human nature. And I think that we have to come to those conversations with, authenticity and and be as genuine as we possibly can not be afraid to say I don't know and ask questions Um, but I think it's really our role to ask really discerning questions listen really well try to get a good understanding of the perspective of the people who are so engaged in the organization that they're willing to give up hours and hours and hours to be supportive with their talent and with their time and think through, okay, what is it about their interest in this place that is going to really continue so that there is a, perhaps a financial investment? Um, I, I think we just have to see people as people and understand that. Although I will say there is that power dynamic. And um, I think the more that we can come to those conversations with clarity and specifics, the better off we are going to represent our organization. What was it about Cranbrook that inspired you to make the move um, in 2017? I, I think it was more, well, first of all, Cranbrook is very much like the Getty. Um, because of the way that the programs are put together, it is complex, um, a bit disjointed sometimes, and yet coming together and, and some of those silos are really breaking down. Also similar to the Getty, the founders are still around. So the Getty family members would frequently show up and same at Cranbrook, we still have members of the Booth family involved here. And so you think about how do you respect those family members who are the founders um, of the institution and make sure that there is an understanding of, of their sites on the place and what they want to do to keep things moving forward. Um, on a much more personal level, I, my family's in this region, and it was a really good time for me to come back, um, reconnect with my family. My mom was still living when I moved back, and I was really fortunate to spend the last three years of her life together with her while I was here. So was, I, I would say all in all, it was really driven by family and personal connection. I meant to ask you about some of the memorable gifts that you've been a part of. You named two in our pre-podcast questionnaire. Uh, 
one in Fort Branch, Indiana, and then the Gilbert gift. So the floor is yours. What should we know about those experiences? And what did you learn? I'll start with the, the Fort Branch, Indiana gift. Um, it was a, a gift that I worked on while I was at IU and it reminded me just how precious um, gifts can be. And it, it really was the story of a, an elderly woman living alone in a beautiful little house in, in Fort Branch and her husband um, who had passed was a film collector of Black Hawk films. Um, and she realized that by keeping these in her closet in her unair conditioned home, the films were just going to deteriorate and she wanted to give them to the film studies program at IU. Um, they had a, a university connection as well. And I remember visiting with her over several occasions in the living room, talking with her about her husband and how difficult it was for her to transfer those personal possessions to the university um, because she really, I think, in her heart of hearts was giving up another part of him, but she knew it was the right thing to do. And I cite that gift because it reminds all of us that it's not necessarily about the value of the gift and the number of zeros and decimals. It really is all about the ultimate gift as it's defined by the donor. And in this case, I think giving all of those films to the university was the ultimate act of generosity um, for, for Ida was her name. And um, it, it just taught me so many lessons about what generosity means, what an ultimate gift really is, is um, and, and how generous people really can be. And then- Great story. Yeah, yeah. It, it's obviously it's it's still so close to my heart. Um, and then you take it to to where we are today, and and Cranbrook collectively being able to work with a tremendous um, leader at our art academy. The chair of the academy is Jennifer Jennifer Gilbert, and um, Jennifer's vision after spending years watching, observing, asking questions, listening, and realizing where progress could be made and where she could make a tremendous difference in moving that progress forward. And so that- And so just, you know, headlines for folks, $30 million gift to support work on diversity, equity, and inclusion. It will support 20 full tuition fellowships for students from underrepresented groups and create an endowment and financial aid. And like truly 20 years from now, the world will be a different place because of it. Yeah, absolutely right. And already Cranbrook's world is different today because of it. Um, one of the key parts of the gift was not only to support students, but also support uh, visiting artists to come in so that the students who were being brought in as those Gilbert Fellows could actually see artists like themselves. They were being mirrored then in the faculty because we recognize that we do not have a diverse faculty at our academy. So Jennifer wisely thought through, okay, what do we need to put together to make sure these students feel 
welcomed at home, a part of this place, and also have a view to what their future might look like. So that was a key part of the gift as well. Um, and I have to say, Jennifer has just been a tremendous ally to work with because um, she, she understands it and she leads with her heart. That gift closed last year or was announced in 2021. Um, how would you define when it started, you know, when the conversation started? And I'm sure it was a very kind of blurry start given the relationships, but what were the phases of going from we've got a problem or there's an opportunity that might be addressable via philanthropy to active, uh, you know, I don't know if negotiation is the right word, but, but how do you kind of help somebody craft the level of impact and the scale and, and, and how collaborative was that with, with Jennifer in this case? The, I, I think the, the gift really was in formation for, for a couple of years, you know, a thought process that was rolling around as Jennifer was identifying more and more problems or not, not problems, but challenges and, and thinking about Detroit as she and her husband, Dan do and how they can be catalysts to really the resurgence and the renovation of this area and the regeneration of growth here. Um, how do we innovate? How do we put creatives in the boardroom? How do we recognize that the problems that we're trying to solve have to be solved with all minds at the table because it's going to take that kind of thinking? So I think in a, you know, over time, Jennifer was seeing her role as the chair of the Academy of the Board of Governors and recognizing, okay, what, what are the lessons learned here and how do we have to bring these into play here at Cranbrook? I understand, and I haven't heard this directly from Jennifer, but I understand there were many conversations at home that included the entire family. And, you know, basically what I've heard is that, you know, it's about walking the walk and talking the talk and, and how are we going to be catalysts to make a difference. I also have to give tremendous credit to one of Jennifer's governors who became a, a real confidant in conversations and you know, two volunteers, peers talking to one another, and, and one really became the person who could ask Jennifer a lot of the tough questions, much like what you and I would do in that role, but this volunteer was able to ask real specific, real tough, real pointed questions to get to the heart of what is it that Jennifer wants to do and how can we make this happen and put it together in a strategic smart way so that the impacts are going to be what we're looking for. That information was flowing then both from the volunteer, from Jennifer, from other staff here at Cranbrook. And we had lots of conversations about how do we craft this strategically into some kind of a, a gift and a, an agreement that um, accomplish what they want to accomplish. And so, um, I think conversations really took, you know, took on in, in the fall of, what was that, 2020? And then by April 5th, so we're coming up on our first anniversary, we announced a, a historic gift for Cranbrook. But I also have to say it was really a historic gift nationally because it was the largest gift ever announced for an 
a graduate art program with the number attached in the country. Yeah. And and so as, go ahead, please. I'll just add a quick PS. One of the things that I, as a, a professional fundraiser, note especially about that gift is throughout, Jennifer didn't ask for recognition. You, know, you think about a $30 million gift and you would think a building or a program or you know something like that. And um, the recognition of what we're calling the Gilbert Fellows came about just organically because we started talking about them as Gilbert Fellows. It wasn't as if Jennifer and Dan made any kinds of requirements on the recognition. So I think that also underscores how the gift really was from the heart. Can I ask with um, a year, uh, roughly hitting the one year mark, um, I've talked to other folks who have been involved with transformational gifts and there have been selective occasions where they've said, it's actually made it a little harder to raise money because it, it makes that, that next sort of annual fund donor question, how could I really make an impact? Whereas others have said, people want to back a winner and it's created momentum and maybe it's too early to say, but kind of where on that spectrum, and maybe you've experienced both ends of the spectrum, but, but what are the lessons learned kind of one year following that transformational historic gift? Uh, for, for us, it definitely leans on the side of um, momentum and people wanting to you know, join that, that um, bandwagon for sure. One of the smart things that's built into the gift is um, what's called the accelerator. So there is an endowed fund that will come to us in time. Uh, but the challenge for us is if we are able to raise $3 million, for, well, I'll put it this way, for every $3 million we raise currently for the Academy and Museum, we receive a million of that endowment currently. So it really built in um, a way for people to feel urgency, feel like they could participate in some bigger success. And um, we are on track to raise that 3 million, probably we'll hit that target by the 30th when we have our big studio fundraiser. So, yeah. So next, next level matching uh, yeah. experience sort of. Um, you've commented about the importance of venture philanthropy. It almost sounds like this reflects that and was structured in a way to inspire that next level of impact, but what is venture, venture philanthropy? Why do you think it deserves more attention? I, I think we need to figure out a way, well, a, a component of the gift is um, for new revenue generation. So we, we have a pool of funds where our, um, our program, the, the academy students and, and some of the leadership in the museum, we can apply for basically a mini grant out of this pool of funds when that money is applied to then further generate revenue for the academy and the museum. So when I think about you know, that kind of dedicated pool that we can go to with ideas um, to, to test ideas, they might fail. And you know, from, from Jennifer's perspective, fail fast, fail, fail quickly and move on, but use these funds to test some really interesting ideas because we're innovators here, we're creatives here, and we have to have the ability to do that. So that, that to me really falls into that venture philanthropy. It's money set yeah. aside to invest and, um, you know, you're not always going to hit a home run, but 
you have to try it. You have to take like it. your your internal Kickstarter, your internal Shark Tank sort of. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I know we're coming up on time. Tell me a little bit about um, your, te- your the team. Are you hiring? And if people want to stay in touch, what's the best way to do that? I I have a phenomenal team. I have the dream team. It was what I always wanted after I left IU to recreate what Kurt and Kent had done. Um, so yeah, I feel like a mother hen. I'm so proud of um, all of the people we've been able to pull together here. And yes, we are hiring. We're expanding out. We're in the campaign planning stages for our comprehensive campaign. And so um, looking for major gift fundraisers, donor relations and stewardship, all sorts of the whole spectrum. And um, it's a great work environment with really good people and a great mission. So yeah. Well said. Well, I'd encourage everybody to look Eileen up on LinkedIn. I know even recently you've been sharing some of the active roles that are, um, you know, that are available and uh, would encourage folks to reach out, mention that you heard uh, from her on the podcast and, you know, keep an eye on uh, Franbrook with all the momentum that we just heard about and uh, such a unique, you know, go to, go to the website. Great job, whoever did the website, by the way, because that is a lot to be able to simply articulate on one homepage. Very well done. Very well Thank done. Thank you. Uh, so with that, uh, it is it is great to have another member of the Lilly School Mafia, the Kurt Simic coaching tree that has been such a great source of guests and, and, and insights here on the Rays podcast. And so with that, Eileen, uh, thank you. Best wishes. Thank you. All right. With that, Brent signing off with today's guest, Eileen Savage, who serves as the Chief Advancement Officer at Cranbrook Educational Community. Take care.